First, though, let's get to these restrictions and what exactly was announced yesterday. And joining me to walk through what it means for you is Sarah Lehman, a criminal lawyer and founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. We may have lost connection with Sarah. All right, we are going to try and get Sarah back on the phone. That is technology. It happens from time to time. I wanted to mention as well, coming up after the 1230 news, we are going to talk a little bit more about something I've just been hearing anecdotally uh, from people out and about distanced at dog parks and what have you, saying, you know, it was a lot easier to deal with restrictions and to stay distanced and to not have social gatherings when you could still go out at, say, 830 or 9 o'clock in the evening and the sun was shining. You could go sit at a beach. You can't really do that anymore. So we're going to talk about crappy weather and the pandemic and how to avoid really falling into a slump of those winter blues. We're going to talk about that after the 1230 news. I think we have reconnected with Sarah Lehman. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We've had you on before talking about the restrictions and the different uh, orders and recommendations, which I know can be a bit confusing uh, for people. Let's go through some of the the announcements that were made yesterday, starting with uh, the mandatory mask policy. What do you see that actually meaning for people? We know that masks are now mandatory, but what does that actually mean? Sure. I mean, before what we were seeing was this strong recommendation to use masks. Um, Starting yesterday, of course, we know they're mandatory now in all public spaces. So one of the things people are asking is, well, what's the definition of a public space? It's pretty wide. Um, Really, it's any space where you are going to be interacting with the public. So even things like a lunchroom at work uh, would be considered a public space. Now, I know that at this point, the province isn't really hoping that they're going to have to impose fines or penalties on people who disobey this rule. Uh, They are hoping that people will be able to comply with it on their own and that they can avoid handing out penalties. And I'm also hoping the same as well. And I think that's where there's some of the confusion when talking about schools, too, because the reason given as to why they're not in schools is that technically a school is not a public space. It's controlled. It's a controlled environment where people, uh, only certain people are allowed in. Uh, But I mean, if you look at that as a workplace, my workplace, where there are still a few of us who physically come into the office, it's a locked floor and it is a closed environment. But we have to, and we have been doing these rules anyway, so these rules don't change anything, which I think is true of a lot of workplaces. But it does kind of fall under that same definition. Sure. And I mean, that is one thing that I find quite puzzling as well. You know, schools become the exception. And one of the other things that was, of course, an exception that was puzzling many people, myself included, was the prohibition against public gatherings of more than 50, except for religious gatherings. Now, that's now been changed after yesterday. But we are seeing these strange anomalies in terms of what is an exception and what is not. So schools and no masks, that still remains one, but it could be changed in the future. I guess we'll just have to see. Uh, bars and pubs, uh, there are still the same uh, existing restrictions, and that is that they can stay open. They have to have the plexiglass or the distance tables. Uh, I know there's been some question about the 10 o'clock uh, cutoff for serving of alcohol, and some pub owners saying, well, can you show me the evidence that shows that once 10 o'clock comes along, suddenly the transmission is rampant through bars? But I think that's one of the areas, too, where there are some questions. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is a kind of arbitrary um, at this point, but I think that it's important to emphasize that, you know, these safety protocols that have put 
put into place in bars and restaurants appear to be working. Uh, from what we know, there's really little to no risk of transmission in restaurants and bars and pubs that are abiding by those safety protocols. And so we all hope that bars, restaurants and pubs can stay open. And so I think it's important to make sure that people are abiding by those protocols, whether they seem arbitrary or not, in hopes of, of course, preserving these liberties and freedoms for everybody. Uh, when it comes to sports, so we are still in a phase three of the of the sports guideline. And again, we talked to some parents in the past who live in Vancouver or uh, and uh, their arena is the Burnaby Arena, which might be 10 minutes from their home. They can no longer go to that arena because it's outside of their health authority. Uh, one of the other things I found interesting yesterday, too, is that uh, Dr. Henry is advising people you shouldn't be carpooling to games, which makes sense on the surface. But then if you think about cohorts, if somebody is playing sports with the same kids they're going to school, you would think that wouldn't be an issue. Yes, and I've actually read some contradictory things on that as well, because I've read, okay, don't carpool, but it's okay to carpool to and from school with children. So again, you know, there seem to be some arbitrary exceptions to all of these rules, and I have no doubt as to why people are having a hard time keeping up. <laughs> and uh, travel was another one. There was some, uh, some people thought it was a ban yesterday. It is not a ban. It is a discouragement to, to travel outside of your local community. Uh, we're hearing from resort owners. We're actually going to be checking in with Sun Peaks a bit later on in the show. Uh, what does it mean to you as far as should people be hesitant? And again, it's that definition of essential or non-essential if they are traveling outside of their local community. Yeah, so it comes down to that definition, right? So whether it's essential really means whether or not you have to do it, you know, in the course of your daily operations in terms of perhaps running your business or accessing essential resources or services. So that is a big question. And again, it's one that's open to interpretation in terms of the definition. But I think that my rule is, you know, if in doubt, it's probably not essential. You can put it into the non-essential category and it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, which I think is a good rule of thumb that a lot of people are following. Uh, you mentioned off the top too uh, that we're all, I think, hoping that it doesn't lead to fines, it uh, doesn't lead to confrontations. Uh, we've talked about uh, last, I think it was last week, we talked about the poker game in Saanich that got busted, uh, the $2,300 ticket given to the homeowner who had more than seven, pe- more than six people plus immediate family. Uh, do you anticipate, though, if we do see people not adhering to the orders, not the recommendations, but the orders, we could see more fines and more people perhaps even fighting them? Yeah, I mean, I think that we will, so long as the orders are in place and people aren't complying with them. The approach so far with most police departments has been one of a hands-off approach. They aren't proactively policing. Um, So it's been more complaints-driven. Situations where, say, um, neighbours or passerbys are calling to police and saying, you know, somebody here is contravening a law. And then that leads to officers coming and knocking on doors, inspecting and perhaps handing out tickets. So, you know, again, I think that we're all hoping that people will just do the right thing and will comply. But where they don't, there is a possibility of penalties and fines. What do you say to people? And and this kind of came up when we were talking about the poker game as well. We had a few rather angry calls to our buzz line saying, you can't tell me what I can do inside my home, uh, who I can talk to, who I can uh, converse with inside my home. This is trampling on my charter rights. 
Yeah, and I mean, that is a concern that lots of people have. But what we have to remember is that there are reasonable limitations on our rights. Our individual rights and liberties can be limited for the greater public good. So in a situation where we have a global pandemic, we can expect that those limitations are going to be a little bit more intrusive than under normal circumstances. And as far as traveling as well, the, the, on, the, on the bigger scale of things, uh, trying to stop people from traveling, say, from B.C. to Alberta or to different provinces, it's my understanding they could bring in quarantine rules and that, but they really can't say, uh, as a Canadian or permanent resident, you can't leave your province. Yeah, so there is a big question right now about mobility rights and um, and Canadian law. So, you know, can our government actually ban us from interprovincial travel? At the beginning of the pandemic, we saw some Atlantic provinces taking this approach and banning people from coming into their provinces. Newfoundland is a great example of that. And their COVID rates have been almost non-existent as a result of that very early enforcement action. But whether or not it was constitutionally valid, I guess, is a big question. All right, Sarah, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. We are going to be talking a bit more about how do you beat those winter blues? It was one thing dealing with a pandemic and still being able to go to a beach, socially distance, enjoy the warm weather, the sunshine until 8, 9, 9.30 at night. It seemed that that made it somewhat more bearable. But here we are. The numbers are getting worse. We have new restrictions and it gets dark pretty early in the day. That is what we are going to be talking about in light of the newest information. Earlier today, we heard from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Take a listen to this report in what he had to say about where Canada could be heading. I don't want to be here this morning. You don't want me to be here this morning. But here we are again. Justin Trudeau says he understands the pandemic is frustrating, especially when we've heard about people who've given up trying to slow the spread. People who stop wearing masks or people who are going out more than they should. But he says we have to endure to prevent more deaths from happening. We're going to need to have to do this for another few weeks, for another few months, and we can begin to see the other side of this. Trudeau also addressed business concerns over future lockdowns. He said that to protect the economy, we need to get the virus under control. Trudeau also announced a new rent subsidy for tenants and an extension to the wage subsidy program. Dave Woodard, Global News. So how do you keep up with the restrictions, keep going about your daily life and not fall into a bit of a funk, especially with this dark weather? Let's bring in Theodore Costco, Assistant Professor of Mental Health and Aging at the Department of Gerontology at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I, I've been hearing anecdotally from people saying, "Ugh, it was it was easier to to deal with this in the summer. At least it was bright outside and and it was sunny and warm. And now with the Vancouver and Metro Vancouver winter weather, it's far more difficult. So, what advice do you tell people who might be feeling uh, a bit of the winter blues? Yeah, well, I think that your anecdotal experiences. There's actually a phenomenon known as seasonal affective disorder, where people do experience you know greater levels of depression as you get diminishing light, that sort of thing. So it is a real, a real thing for sure. And I think you know everything has been made more challenging in the context of the pandemic. But I think two strategies that come to mind that um, in virtually anybody can put in place. Uh, first one being physical activity. I think it can't be understated how important it is to stay active. And this can be little things like even just going for a walk, that sort of thing, doing some sort of resistance training at home. And the second one that has particularly become more challenging is social connectedness. And, you know, with physical distancing measures and restrictions on travel, 
this can be challenging, but it can be as simple as you know, picking up the phone, reaching out, having a, a Skype call or a FaceTime call with somebody. So th- those are really like the two core strategies I think that will be important in sort of getting through the winter blues, as you say. And when you talk about physical activity, I think that's probably a, a bit more challenging for people now that to gyms with the high intensity workouts that have been ordered to close until further notice. And it's exactly that. If you look outside and it's pouring rain, it can be difficult to get that motivation to go for that walk or to go and make sure you get that exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, having a bit of creativity and coming up with alternative strategies, whether it's, you know, taking, if you would normally go for a bike ride outside, but if it's raining, maybe having, you know, an indoor trainer or something like that. But it's really being creative in the context of the, you know, the, the limitations and restrictions that we have in place. Uh, you talked about the, the seasonal effectiveness disorder. Uh, do you think, is it more common then, or will people be more prone to that, given that people are, are, are experience that during any given winter and dark time, but then you throw a pandemic on top of it to add that stress and, and so much more? I would think so. You know, I think that it's, you know, it, when you have these sort of compiling of stressors and things, it, it all adds up. And I think that um, having you know, limitations on social interaction, things like that, which are can normally be used as strategies to mitigate these types of, of um, symptoms, will definitely make things more challenging. But it, it makes it even more important to try and you know reach out to stay connected, to do these things to try and uh, foster better well-being of yourself. When do you know or when should someone be concerned that uh, if they are trying to get exercise and doing that and trying to, to deal with this and, and nothing's working, that maybe it's something more serious? I think a really good indication is when it starts having um, serious negative impacts on your life and your capacity to be able to you know, function in your job or in social relationships. So it's having a a negative effect that's inhibiting your capacity to sort of carry on your day-to-day life, that's, you know, would be a good indication that this might be worth investigating further. Uh, you mentioned the social interactions too, and I think that's that's part of it with the restrictions being to stop social gatherings uh, for at least a couple of more weeks. It can seem pretty daunting. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, as these uh, these challenges are presented and more and more restrictions are being put in place, it's, it's really sort of calling on people's resilience and trying to look at how we can just be creative in the ways that we connect. And I think that as we face more challenges, it becomes even more important to face them head on and try and, you know, do the best within the the limitations and the restrictions that are in place. Uh, Some people swear by the lamps that you stare at for a few uh, minutes or a certain amount of time every day that kind of uh, look like sunlight. Do you suggest doing that or do those types of of tools work as well? Within uh, the... Uh, seasonal affective disorder literature, there's definitely um, uh, some evidence for this so-called light therapy. And it, it's not necessarily just a lamp that you buy uh, at a shop necessarily. There's specific lamps that they've developed um, for this type of thing. So it can be a, there is some evidence for that, but you'd have to do a little bit of a deeper dive rather than just you know, staring at the fluorescent bulb in the ceiling type thing. All right. And on top of that, and, and might be out of your realm, but I would imagine, too, that diet is also important. The getting out, the being active, moving around, but also being mindful of what we're ingesting and not maybe just wanting to go home and eat an entire bag of chips. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, part of um, mental health, and uh, mental health is part of, like, broader holistic health. And I think that if you're fostering 
better well-being, you know, physically, um, it has knock-on effects with psychological health. And so if you are you know, treating your body well and you're ingesting you know, high-quality foods, that can, I can't see it having a negative effect, absolutely. And, you know, if, if it makes you feel better and you feel healthier, you know, that can have a knock-on effect to having, you know, more positive mental health. All right. Good advice. We'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate that. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, a big day in Surrey. About an hour ago, it was made official. The new police chief of the Surrey Police Service was introduced, Norm Lipinski, who has a long career in policing, going back to Edmonton, both with Civic Forces, the RCMP, and most currently in Delta. Let's bring in Jack Hundile, a Surrey City Councillor, to talk a bit more about this. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Joe. Uh, what is your response to this announcement of a police chief for the Surrey Police Service? Well, we always knew that there was going to be um, uh, an announcement for a chief uh, here in uh, in this transition process so far. Um, it's been uh, stiffly delayed, I think. Uh, and one of the immediate sort of reactions we're hearing back from the community is um, there wasn't really the opportunity for once again for the residents to have any um, any real input into uh, you know the selection of a chief. It was done on a fairly short um, time frame as well, where the posting is only out for two weeks. Um, and um, yeah, so that's just sort of been the initial stuff coming back. And I just finished listening to part of the. Uh, the press conference earlier, um, and it, uh, it caused me a couple of questions as well. That uh, you know, you have the police chief saying that look, he's going to start with a fresh slate. Well, what happened to the policing plan, that the transition plan that was already written up? So I think there's just a lot more questions coming out. Uh, when you talk about community input as well, what kind of input are you hearing from people, or do you think people would have liked to have had in choosing this chief? Well, I think one of the fundamentals in, in policing, and I say this as someone who's a police officer for 25 years, that you have to have community support and buy-in, um, because really it's the, it's the community uh, which is going to be the driver behind a success for any initiative from the police. And when you're starting off in such a, such a shaky ground to begin with, where you have different community groups uh, in person, online, and really from both sides of, of it, that... Uh, that are looking at this now thinking, you know, there is no input in there. It seems to be the stuff is rammed through uh, as one of many election promises. And now with another 690 odd days until the next election, um, it's going to be trying to push it to a point uh, where it can't be turned back. And I think really it's residents. That's what they're frustrated about. And the other, the other comments I hear back are going to be, or have heard back is, so what's going to change with a new police service here that we don't have today or can't do today? Uh, and what's it going to cost me? And we already see the impact of sort of this shell game budgeting that's going on with our budget right now. Uh, One of uh, the questions I'd heard as well was, here is somebody that has more than 25 years of experience when we talk about policing. But uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of that experience is with the RCMP. And the question Mm -hmm. being asked, well, if you're going to a civic force and this was all because you want to get rid of the RCMP, uh, does it seem strange that your chief is going to be somebody with an RCMP background? Well, it runs counter to the, to the narrative that the mayor has been pushing. There's always talk about, you know, we'll be local, we'll be local. And, and there's a couple, a couple other parts to that. First of all, you do have someone that's spent a significant portion of their career in the RCMP, in the region, from the same force that you're trying to get rid of uh, in the process of trying to move out. The other thing, too, is that um, when, you, when you talk about local, well, okay, you have a chief of police that, from my understanding, doesn't even live in Surrey. 
you got people on the police board that only live in Surrey. Um, and that goes in hand in hand with some of the councillors that don't live in Surrey. So how local is really going to be? And I know there's community groups out there that are asking for input. Like, you know, we have different unique needs in our community. So when are they going to get a chance to voice their concerns as well and be heard? How important, uh, you mentioned where the police chief lives. How important do you think it is that uh, the chief of police of a certain community live in that community or that city? Well, I think it's important to the mayor because on one hand, if, if, this is, if your entire argument was we need local, we want local, uh, then you better start producing local. Um, really, it's, and that's the mayor's narrative that he's been pushing out and everything at every sort of turn, it runs against that. And now when I, when I look at, um, you know, um, in, in the RCMP or in the Surrey Detachment, there's approximately, I believe, about 38% of the members that police in Surrey actually live in Surrey, um, which is different than the municipal police forces out there. So I really think that's, that's a question for the mayor to now explain. Look, you've been saying this all along, that you want local, local, um, but, you know, how are you producing this? Uh, there were already, uh, even when this uh, news started to leak before the news conference, the official announcement earlier today, uh, there were some negative stories that were posted. And clearly there is a division and uh, there was a group uh, that, that that wanted a different choice or, or like you said, wanted more input. Uh, are you concerned that that division and that fighting that's already taking place and has been taking place is going to spill over into uh, whatever this new service ends up looking like? Uh, well, you know what, this is, it's a failure of leadership at the top. I go back to the mayor and uh, his majority on council, is what are they doing to sort of quell that? And um, because you knew the situation, when you ran even in the last election, it, police transition was the lowest out of all the points on, on the platform. First was guy trained, then was smart development, and policing was really low. So you've taken something here, trying to spun it around, um, and now you have uh, really, really no one's happy, I think, uh, depending how you look at it. The residents are happy. There's other community groups out there that aren't happy. Um, the only person that seems to be happy here is the mayor, who tends to be really, I think, uh, isolated from the community. Uh, there was a story out today as well in the Surrey Now Leader, in the local paper, uh, saying that the current, the Surrey RCMP Assistant Commissioner, Brian Edwards, mm-hmm. uh, talked about this memo uh, that uh, has been made public uh, that talks about a 25% reduction in funding for the RCMP to accommodate the police transition. Uh, he said uh, and was quoted in that paper saying he had no idea that was coming. How concerning is that? That's very concerning. When I first read that report, and we only got that uh, the, um, the budget release when it came out to the public on Monday, reading it. Now, when I go back to the police transition report that was produced, it does specify in there in year 2021, there will be a reduction, sort of like as one goes down, the other goes up. But that's also contingent upon having, you know, all the pieces set in place. Like by now, there should have been a chief, there should have been an executive, there should have been a hiring process. All these things should have already been happening. And now, so you have a delay in the whole transition um, that hasn't kept up with the delays uh, that were in that police report. So you have a huge disconnect going on right there. And uh, and and I, I really respect the OIC for bringing that forward and highlighting that because uh, he's also bound by the contract. And if you if you sort of read his email, uh, as I did, uh, the language uh, of the contract is actually spelled out in there by having, you know, uh, effective policing for the city of Surrey. What do you think is going to be the first job then? Or, I mean, there are many. It seems like uh, for the new chief, though, uh, of the Surrey Police Service, I mean, you've got you've got this controversy all, already. You've got an mm-hmm. issue that's very divisive in the community. And you've got to, to, to follow through, you would think, on what the mayor has promised in that the whole reason for this was to have better policing in this Surrey. How do you even tackle that? Yeah, 
that, that's going to be a challenge for not just the chief, but also the police board itself, because, I mean, their their mandate was very clear as well. Look, you, you need to set up an established, a new municipal police force that has all this. Um, and really, you, you can't do it. Fundamentally, you cannot do it for a city which is growing by 12, uh, you know, 12,000 people per year at the, uh, the minimum by having less police officers. So I think the first thing that he is going to have to do is sort of get realistic with that police transition plan that was produced by VPD to say, look, this is what Surrey needs, and actually go and do the heavy lifting and the and, and the real work on the ground, that connection with the community, uh, and really and get the community buy-in. Because as I stated from early on, unless you get a community buying into policing, um, you're setting up, you're starting off with a really with a flawed a flawed process with a flawed outcome. All right, Councillor Ahundal, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you very much, Jill. We are continuing to talk about the official announcement of the new police chief for the Surrey Police Service. That will be the civic force uh, that will eventually replace the RCMP in, Sur- in Surrey. It was officially announced earlier today that Norm Lipinski, who has a history of working with the Edmonton Police Service as well, he's a former assistant commissioner for the RCMP and a deputy chief in Delta, will be taking that top job in Surrey. So for more reaction to that, we have reached Suki Sandu, spokesperson for the group Wake Up Surrey. Suki, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon to you. What is your response that a chief has been named for the new service? Well, as you know, this has been quite a divisive uh, process, but uh, on behalf of Wake Up Surrey, we welcome uh, the appointment of incoming police chief Norman Lipinski to the city of Surrey. We think this is a, a step forward. And we also commend the efforts of the uh, Surrey Police Board for undertaking this extensive, uh, transparent recruiting process. I know not everyone's going to be happy with uh, someone to uh, continue the political fight of it, which has been divisive. But uh, we've always advocated the need for a new policing model since, ju- since June 2018. We believe such a policing model is uh, more community-based, it's more collaborative, uh, it also understands our city's unique demographics, um, and it also improves uh, identification and, and engagement within our residents. Uh, when you talk about the demographics, because that uh, has been one of the uh, issues, I suppose, is the word for it raised, in that uh, you talk also about it being divisive. There, there certainly have been uh, some negative uh, parts uh, or opinions, I guess, of, of uh, for maybe from some groups that were hoping for a different choice uh, for the chief of police of this new force. So are you concerned at all uh, that uh, with going with somebody who does have a history with the RCMP, who isn't from Surrey, that that could lead, that could feed that divisiveness? Uh, let me be very clear here. Um, uh, just, I'm not a big proponent of symbolic diversity. Sometimes symbolic diversity can have can be a disservice. I chaired a task force for the city of Surrey many years ago, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was on diversity and inclusion. And we actually won a national national race relations award. I'm also studying my master's in diversity and inclusion. Um, it's about competency. In my task force, some of the best people, the best um, members of our task force were non-racialized people. Um, so I, I think we need to be very clear here. It, it, the diversity and inclusion is a very, should be a cornerstone of our new policing model, but we cannot just have symbolic figureheads. I know one individual who um, was also a serious candidate. He's a good friend of mine. I, I have huge respect for him, but I also have full faith that the new policing 
model that's going to be, it's not just about the chief. It's about um, the, the planning, you know, diversity becoming a strategic part of uh, the, the daily business, whether it's best practices, processes, training, procedures, and also ensuring that we do not just bring people at the leadership level symbolically, but they actually have some competence in the meaning of diversity and inclusion, whether it be policy making, whether it be policy implementation, whether it be improving community engagement. And when we talk about that, and community engagement is obviously a huge, a huge one, a big part of this. So how do you get past what some might see again, or, or some may have said, well, if it's a community force, if we're going from this, this huge giant of the RCMP to a community force, uh, why not go for somebody or look for somebody that has roots in Surrey and that's from the community? I think, I think the key is not just having roots in Surrey. The key is to have roots in municipal policing and also understand um, uh, what we what type of model we had previously. Just because you live in Surrey, that I think I think uh, the incoming commissioner, uh, incoming chief has has worked in a municipal force in Edmonton. He's also had a senior leadership role with the RCMPE division, and also recently um, had a senior role within the Delta Municipal Police. He understands the the positive nature of going municipal. And also understands the um, the demographics we have. Delta also is a is a is a very diverse uh, municipality. And I think if you're going to be a leader in policing, you you need to understand that diversity needs to be a critical component uh, of your of your daily best practices. So um, I I I want to give uh, the incoming chief some benefit of the doubt. I think he's astute enough to. We've reached out to him today uh, to have a meeting in the next little while because we also got to realize, Joe, we've got a very uh, serious gang violence problem. And we've also maintained policing is just one aspect of this multi multifaceted issue. It starts with parents, too. It's about mental health. It's about um, early prevention and and met- metrics from elementary school onward. It's about community stakeholders stepping up. It's about equity and recreation opportunities for youth. So I, I want to be very um, upfront with your listeners that policing is one aspect of our increasing gang violence. Right. Uh, Suki, we've only got about a minute left. I just, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the first order of business uh, will be then, or what's the, the most pressing issue for the new chief? I think the, the most pressing issue is, is to create a, a policing model, a strategic policing model that is reflective of our city's demographics our uh, uh, create a crime reduction reduction strategy that's very comprehensive and to bring community stakeholders on board and to ensure that he's got different voices at his leadership team that are competent that have competency in diversity and inclusion and also policing of course all right well we'll leave it there Uh, suki thanks so much for joining us and for talking about this today Uh, appreciate your time and we'll uh, be very uh, interested to see where things go from here and i'm sure we'll be talking with you again thank you jill and uh, one thing we want is wake up sorry we want to ensure that we want to keep the political rhetoric out of this we know that's divisive but there comes a time we need to go forward as as a city and and uh and, and and go on with this with this model, but also ensure we want to let residents also know we have concerns about transparency, we have concerns about budgeting, and we will also continue to raise those voices too. All right, thanks again Thank so you. much.